Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Finding universal rules for life is really difficult. Probably the most famous universal rule is the Golden Rule. It has shown up in a lot of different cultural and religious traditions. For example, the Hebrew Bible says in Leviticus, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your kinsfolk. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that sentiment gets reiterated twice in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. In both, Jesus says, Do to others what you want them to do to you. And the same advice shows up in the Quran as well, which says, Pay children of Adam as you would love to be paid, and be just as you would love to have justice. And the Quran certainly has a more dramatic way of putting it. The same basic golden ruley sentiment also shows up in Buddhist, Hindu, Zoroastrian, and other religious traditions. Basically, treat people the way you want to be treated. This is all well and good. But what if you and somebody else have remarkably different needs and wants and preferences? For instance, I love Thai food. I love it when people serve me Thai food. But I wouldn't serve Thai food to somebody with a peanut allergy. For that, we have the Platinum Rule, a modern invention of uncertain origin that states, Do unto others as they would have you do unto them, not as you would have them do unto you. This is a good revision, and it takes into account that people are different and diverse, and what may be a noodly peanut sauce feast for one person might be poison for another. But if you want to go in an entirely different direction about universal maxims, you could try out Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. It says, Act only according to that maxim whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should be a universal law. Basically, act the way you would want all actors to act when you do a thing. So, think about how you want the universe to function as a grand ethical system, and just do that. Easy, right? The thing that all these universal laws have in common is that they are very general, and they don't really take context into account. They're more systems than they are rules. They don't say, do X, Y, and Z. They say, do things informed by this process. They govern how you do things as opposed to what you're supposed to do. Making concrete universal laws about what you should and should not do in all situations is hard because there are always mitigating factors. There are always unforeseen variables. One might even say that universal law is for lackeys, context is for kings. One might say that. A law like do not kill is pretty good 99% of the time, but it goes out the window in extraordinary circumstances. I think we can all agree that Allied soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy on D-Day and killing lots of Nazis are on the right side of history because, you know, context. But as hard as it is to make concrete universal laws, that didn't stop some anonymous wealthy person from, in 1980, erecting a literal monument to right action and universals. 
they decided to build this monument in rural Georgia, of all places. And they went beyond the golden rule, the platinum rule, and the categorical imperative. The Georgia Guidestones, as they are called, give specific advice for how to run a civilization. It's not good advice, but it is specific. The monument kind of looks like a mashup of Stonehenge and a monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's just over 20 feet tall and about 100 miles from Atlanta. In 1979, the story goes, a man who called himself R.C. Christian contracted the Elberton Granite Finishing Company of Elberton, Georgia, claiming to represent a small group of loyal Americans to commission the structure. Supposedly, the construction company thought this guy was just some nut off the street. After all, he did just walk into a construction company, announced that he wanted to build a giant modern Stonehenge, and, by the way, all of the various stones of this henge would have rules for civilization emblazoned on them that might be kind of useful in a hypothetical post-apocalyptic scenario. The Granite Company tried to make him go away by giving him a very high quote for the project. But instead of being scared off by the large price tag, the man who called himself R.C. Christian said, Sure. So, this guy, R.C. Christian, is only known to have ever interacted with two people. Joe Fendley, the president of Elberton Granite, and Wyatt Martin, the president of the Granite City Bank. And, when asked about the identity of the eccentric man who wanted to build his own Stonehenge, both of these guys say they tried to discourage him on multiple occasions, that the project was a waste of money, that it would need bigger rocks than either of those companies were used to furnishing, and there were all kinds of ways that it would fail. Also, they told him multiple times that the whole thing was just kind of weird and they didn't understand the utility. But R.C. Christian was not to be deterred. He was, by all accounts, pretty steadfast. He insisted on spending his money on a giant stone monument and claimed to represent a group of people who had been planning the project for over 20 years. He heard all kinds of objections, and he shot all of them down. This very rich man was intent on giving these granite companies his money, and, as much as they tried to tell him, please don't give us money for this, he said, I insist. The granite and construction companies needed some assurance they'd actually get paid, though, for this unusual project, so they did require a substantial amount of cash up front, which they were skeptical about even getting. They got it, though. They also insisted on knowing R.C. Christian's real name. He was upfront about saying it was a pseudonym. He revealed it. But he also insisted that they never reveal his true identity and that all documents pertaining to the project would be destroyed after the guidestones were finished. They laid the initial plans. They selected a site. They determined all the things that needed to be determined. And with that, R.C. Christian shook the hands of the two men he was working with and said, You'll never see me again. During the construction process, he did correspond with Martin and Fendley about how things were going, but all of his letters came from different cities. After the project, as he insisted, all documents related to R.C. Christian and the Georgia Guidestones were destroyed. 
if the Elberton Granite Company or the Granite City Bank still have any letters or financial documentation or anything else about their mysterious client, they're not telling. But let's get to the Guidestones themselves. Like I said, they're about 20 feet tall and consist of four big oblong slabs that resemble the monolith from 2001. The four slabs are arranged around a single central column, and the five tall stones are topped with a capstone. There's a picture over on weirdhistorypodcast.com if you want to take a look. And the guidestones don't just look like Stonehenge, they also function a bit like Stonehenge. There's a slot in the central column that aligns with the sun on equinoxes and solstices, for instance, and there's a hole in the capstone where you can look up and see the North Star, just in case you need the North Star pointed out to you. But the main function of the Georgia Guidestones is Ten Rules for Civilization. The monument is supposed to survive a hypothetical apocalypse and offer guidelines and pointers for how to run things. And the monument proclaims, let these be guidestones to an age of reason, with age of reason being capitalized, because, of course. The rules, written in English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Arabic, Hebrew, Mandarin, and Russian, are as follows. Quote, Maintain humanity under 500 million, in perpetual balance with nature. Guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Unite humanity with a living new language. Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. Unquote. And yes, it does say leave room for nature twice in that last part. I did, I did not misspeak. But let's go through these rules and see if they're feasible or not. I'm going to take them in reverse order, because the worst ones are the first ones. Starting with number 10. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. This seems fine. Nature is nice. Next. Prize truth, beauty, love. Seeking harmony with the infinite. Sounds a bit new agey. I don't really know how to seek harmony with the infinite, but this also seems fine. Balance personal rights with social duties. This is pretty good advice. We should all do this, be it at home, out in society, etc. Sure. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. Generally good advice, but seems fairly subjective. Still nothing too wrong here, but different people will interpret this very differently. Next one, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. Now we're getting into some of the hard-to-deal-with stuff. There's a lot here. For instance, how does one define a nation? That's something I've talked about before on this podcast, and it really can get tricky. In the last episode about whether or not Taiwan is a country, we talked about how hard that is to pick apart. The idea of nationhood, which I talked about back in the Italian fascism series, is another really problematic idea, even though it doesn't seem problematic at first blush. And what about international agreements relating to commerce or environmental policy? How would you enforce rules about, say, immigration, like the EU has? And how would you enforce the ruling of a hypothetical world court? 
without external pressure on the parties at the court, why should they respect its ruling? These are all big questions that the Guidestones don't answer. Next, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Okay, seems fine. Next, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. I don't really have a problem with any of this. It sounds like good but kind of bland advice. If Vulcans made Hallmark cards, they would probably sound like this. Next one. Unite humanity with a living new language. Okay, universal languages are something that people have tried before. Esperanto is the most famous attempt at building a universal human language. But implementations and quality assurance for projects like this are really hard to ensure. Esperanto is regular and easy to learn, which is great, but variations do have a way to sneak in. English and Spanish speakers, for instance, will speak it differently, with their grasp of the new language informed by the biases of their native language. Everyone does this when learning a new language, be it Esperanto or anything else, and linguistic drift over time and space are basically inevitable. This piece of advice, I understand the aspiration to it. It would be great if we could all understand each other, but this probably isn't feasible. In fact, it's probably more feasible for us to have universal translators a la Star Trek than it is to actually get everyone speaking the same language worldwide. However, it's the last two, or rather the first two pieces of advice, where the Georgia Guidestones get really problematic. The second piece of advice is guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Okay, this is bad. This is really bad. With its second commandment, the Georgia Guidestone seems to buy into all of the worst ideas about eugenics and fitness. The monument doesn't define either fitness or diversity, and to be fair, the use of the word diversity puts it at odds with a lot of the rhetoric about racial purity that surrounded eugenics, but this one is pretty squicky and cringe-making. It implies that we should govern who should mate with whom and for what purposes, and that sounds untenable at the least and dystopian at the most. Kinda Gattaca-tacular, guys. But it's not as dystopian as the first commandment, which is maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. As of January 2019, when I'm recording this, there are 7.7 .7 billion people on planet Earth. Cutting the population to only 500 million would mean wiping out over 80% of humanity, and not even Thanos was that ruthless. Also, we don't have exact numbers, but the last time the world's population was that low was maybe in the 1700s, so this would set the clock back by a lot. The last time there were only 500 million people on Earth was back in, like, Paul Revere days. Presumably, the Guidestones are for a post-apocalyptic future where the number of humans has been reduced that dramatically by, say, nuclear war or environmental catastrophe or something like that. But in such a hypothetical Mad Maxian situation, how would you even be able to tell how many humans there were? Would you have the resources for a worldwide census? Probably not. 
And if people are running around in a post-nuclear nightmare a la Tank Girl or Fallout, they're probably going to have priorities other than counting how many humans there are. So it's probably not great advice. And in the event that civilization does destroy itself, I don't think that anyone is seriously going to look at a monument outside Elberton, Georgia, and think, oh yeah, that's what we should do. That's how you run a society. Thank you, large blocks of granite I found. I was so unclear on the concept a moment ago. But then I found these stones, and they had advice, and I guess we'll do that now. Instead, I imagine a lone wanderer trudging through the irradiated wasteland with only their dog at their side, seeing the Georgia Guidestones and thinking, huh, that's weird, before moving on to the next area filled with super mutants and radiation ghouls. Because of their apocalyptic advice, the Guidestones are the subject of no end of conspiracy theories. I'm not going to rehash the conspiracy theories here, but plenty of folks have pinned their construction on the Rosicrucians because of the name R.C. Christian. And in 2008, a vandal painted Death to the New World Order and Jesus Will Beat You Satanist all over the stones in red polyurethane paint. We'll probably never know who commissioned the Guidestones, and that's just as well. R.C. Christian was probably just a single eccentric rich guy with way too much money. He didn't give us much in the way of good advice for how to rebuild society after a nuclear nightmare, but he did give us something else. A bit of mystery. In a slightly weirder world. That's something I always appreciate, even if the Georgia Guidestones don't offer the best advice. In the meantime, there's always the golden rule, the platinum rule, and the categorical imperative. Those ideas will probably survive the apocalypse, no stone monument necessary. And it's no mystery to who makes this podcast possible. That's you. Yes, you. Listening to it. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast every month. If you wish to become a supporter, and you should, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Thank you also to people who have left reviews for the show. Go over to Apple Podcast, write a review, give us stars. That helps other people discover the show, and I always appreciate the feedback. Also, I'm on social media, at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T on Twitter. And the show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Mm-hmm.